Our scripture reading today comes from Colossians chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are just a little bit over halfway through the third and final section of the Apostles' Creed. It's a a section that began with these words, this affirmation that I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Today we make the next step in our treatment of this third section as we get to the affirmation that I believe in the forgiveness of sins. You've probably noticed that theme running throughout our scripture reading, the songs that we have sang together, our prayers this morning already. Obviously, forgiveness of sins is an essential reality in the Christian faith. Today, we turn our focus to this subject. And And while we understand, I think, and we even declared this reality in song today, we we understand that we are to imitate our forgiving God in liberally dispensing forgiveness even to those who have wronged us in very personal ways. Extending mercy and forgiveness is undoubtedly a calling for our lives as Christians. But today, due to time constraints, we want to limit our focus to the forgiveness we receive from God. In the fourth century, Gregory of Nyssa, who's one of the great Cappadocian church fathers, he delivered a homily on the subject of forgiveness in which he said this, that the forgiveness of debts, forgiveness of debts, that's an image that's going to be recurring this morning, the forgiveness of debts is a unique and special prerogative of God. Consider what we read in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 7, as the religious leaders sort of push back against Jesus, saying, who do, who do you think you are? No one can forgive sin except for God. Now, while the idea of forgiveness in our scriptures is not limited to the life, the work, and the teachings of Jesus, Jesus is often, I think, appropriately where our minds go when we think of the forgiveness of sins. Jesus and forgiveness go hand in hand. To to think about one is to necessarily begin thinking of the other. We see this thread running throughout the life of Jesus. We actually see it before his life begins. It's a, a part of the birth announcements when the name of this 
coming Messiah is given, what, what do we read? Well, we read, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save you from your sins. As the life of Jesus progresses, we see that he teaches, even in the Lord's Prayer, we'll come back to that in a moment, but he teaches us that we are in desperate need of the forgiveness of God. This is something we need to be routinely asking God, forgive us our sins. And throughout his ministry, he declares that in that passage in Mark chapter 2, that he is the one who has authority to forgive sin and And he does so explicitly on a couple of different occasions in the Gospels, which quite naturally gets him into some trouble with various religious leaders of the day. So this is evident from even before his birth. You shall call his name Jesus. He's the one who will forgive us from our sins. He he teaches about it routinely. He says he's the one who has authority to forgive sin. So it's a thread that runs throughout his life and ministry and then We see it at the very end of his life, as he's on the cross, breathing his final breaths. What what are some of the things he says? Well, he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Suffice it to say, forgiveness is close to the heart of our God. One of the fundamental realities, one of the great necessities of the Christian faith. The Christian faith simply is not intelligible without the forgiveness of sins. And so we declare in this creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now implicit in that affirmation is the reality of sin. That sin is real and impacts all of us. If we believe, as we have declared together today, that I believe in the forgiveness of sins, we are acknowledging that we believe sin is real. That it is devastating and that we are in need of forgiveness. Otherwise, declaring a belief in the forgiveness of sins is meaningless or irrelevant at best. If we look to some of the earliest followers of Jesus, some of those individuals who wrote much of our New Testament, we find that a belief in sin and a belief in our need for forgiveness was a basic assumption. It was almost taken for granted. Of course we are sinful. Of course we are in need of forgiveness. That's not as much the case today. I think this is one of the wide gulfs that must be crossed in attempting to interpret and apply the gospel message in a 21st century context. We simply don't always share that fundamental assumption about the reality of sin and our need for forgiveness. I think of the words of of St. Augustine in in his famous work entitled Confessions. I know many of you have probably read at least portions of that great work, but in that work he describes almost in excruciating detail many of his personal failings throughout his life. From, from some of the simple and, and almost at times humorous misdeeds of, of childhood to the really destructive, sinful passions of adolescence and young adulthood. 
He, he describes one instance when he was a child and, and stole a bunch of pears. And one of the things as he's writing this that, that was so concerning to him, it seems, is that he didn't even really want the pears that he stole. He didn't need them. He already possessed pears that he says were superior in quality to the ones he stole, and yet he steals these pears, it seems, for the thrill of the steal. And the whole work is saturated with those detailed confessions of misdeeds. And, and as I read it, I, I, perhaps in our context, few things sound as foreign to our ears as the profusion and the intricate detail of Augustine's confessions. You know, John Stott suggested that for him personally, this is one of the most serious, one of the most concerning signs of the times we find ourselves in, that few people in our culture have a conscious awareness of any need for forgiveness. We're all aware that, that evil exists on some level. I think we can all identify it in, in certain places. We see it societally. We see it in institutions. We, we see it in governments and, and governmental leaders. We can even see it quite clearly in our neighbor. The disconnect for many of us, I think, speaking for myself, is developing the humility to see it in here. And perhaps it's not even an unwillingness to see our failures or to recognize our sins, but maybe for us it is seen in an ever-increasing ability to excuse my shortcomings or to gloss over them. Maybe because I'm functioning with the idea that the ends justify the means. So as long as I'm getting to a good place in the end, it doesn't matter what I have to do to get there. And if the ends justify the means, I can find a way around pretty much all culpability or responsibility for my sin. This is a really dangerous place to be. As people of faith, as followers of Jesus, we are seeking to grow in our conscious awareness of our need for forgiveness an awareness of the many ways in which I fail and fall short and miss the mark. We affirm in the creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, but that is an affirmation that sin is real and it's devastating. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, we read this, that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Throughout our scriptures, we find this truth put forth that sin is devastating and it is real. It is missing the mark for the way God intends us to live as his creation. Now, this obviously requires a belief that we are, in fact, God's creation. And that there's a particular way God created our world to function most appropriately. So, it wouldn't or, or shouldn't be surprising to us when individuals who don't believe in the previous parts of the creed or don't adhere to the Christian faith, that there would be a disconnect there or a difficulty in getting to the place where they would believe in the reality of sin. That, that shouldn't 
be surprising. That actually makes sense in my thinking. But for those who follow Jesus, this is a fairly basic point. And perhaps in the church, it's not an outright disbelief in sin, but maybe it's more a trivializing of my sin in comparison to the sins that are much more serious that others engage in. I mean, at least I don't do X, Y, and Z. Those are the, the really bad sins, and I avoid that. So I, I can trivialize the ways in which I fall short, but I'm reminded of, of what Jesus said in our gospel text from a couple of weeks ago in Mark chapter 12, when he's asked about the most important commandment. So keep in mind, First John we read that sin is lawlessness. And Jesus asked about the most important commandment. He quotes from Deuteronomy in saying that the first, the most important commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. And the second is like it. It is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. Everything hinges on these two, the most serious, the most important issues in the life of faith. I don't know about you, but I have a hunch, actually. And I have a hunch about you because I know myself, and I know my success or my lack thereof in keeping these commandments. What Jesus says are the most serious, the most important commandments, and I miss the mark when it comes to these. So comparing myself to what I perceive to be more serious sins is a farce. Jesus says, this is the most important, and I miss it. Comparison is obviously destructive in many ways. The, the thief of joy, as it is popularly said, but the comparison game is always a losing game when it comes to sin as well. So if we acknowledge the reality of sin, which I think we affirm in the creed, the, the next question in this conversation on the forgiveness of sins is surrounding our responsibility. Do we have any guilt when it comes to sin? Or are our actions and our attitudes and the words we speak, is all of that, I don't know, maybe conditioned entirely by hereditary or conditioned by the environment we find ourselves in. I think we've probably all heard this excuse a time or two. Well, I, I just can't help it. I can't help my anger or, or fill in that blank with whatever vice we happen to, to think of. I can't help it because I am, and fill in that blank with whatever nationality or, or heritage we own that, that happens to be associated with that generalization. And, and of course we do inherit personality. And we even inherit, I think, particular propensities towards sin, but our scriptures teach that that doesn't absolve us of our failings, that there is personal responsibility involved in sin as well. I mean, a part of our personhood as human beings is freedom, right? A part of our personhood is agency, even moral agency. 
So, so Paul captures a bit of the tension in these ideas in Romans chapter 7 as he's speaking of the power of sin that is at work within us when it bumps head to head with an understanding of and even a desire to do what is right and what is good. There's this constant battle waging a war within us. In verse 19, he says this, for I do not do the good I want. I understand that there is good to be done and I fail at doing that, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. The New Testament teaches us that because of our sin, that that we have personal responsibility in this. And because of our sin, we stand guilty before a holy and righteous God. Some of the language that is used throughout our scriptures, it was language that we found in a couple of the songs we sang this morning. As as our scriptures are teaching about the reality of the, the penalty of sin or the weight, the burden of sin, one of the images that is used is the idea of a debt that is owed, the penalty of our sin. Maybe you remember that parable from Matthew chapter 18 that Jesus tells, where he is describing what forgiveness is like in his kingdom. And in the parable, there is a servant who owes a massive debt. We're talking millions and millions, years and years of of wages, millions of, of dollars, a debt that could never be repaid, that this servant could never even begin to think of how he might go about repayment of this debt. And and I think we find in that parable an accurate picture of our sin and our responsibility for our sin. When, When faced with the reality of our sin, there is nothing we can do to make it right. Now, I think it's important to note at this point the distinction between guilt and shame. We even sang about this today. At times, I think these terms, guilt and shame, are understood as interchangeable terms that have the same basic meaning, but I think there's a a clear and important distinction, especially as we consider them theologically. Guilt is not primarily a feeling or a disposition we have in our minds, a frame of mind that envelops us when we sin or a feeling of despair or worthlessness that we can't shake because of our sin. That is shame. That overwhelming feeling that clouds our minds and envelops us, that is shame. Guilt is different. It is an objective state we find ourselves in, not a frame of mind. And while shame, I think, eventually is going to be destructive, a force that will destroy life, I think from a theological perspective, guilt has the opposite effect. This is how scholar Luke Timothy Johnson put it. He said, we are, to put it simply, guilty of sin. Guilt is not a feeling, but a rational estimation of human responsibility. He went on, guilt is not a block to self-esteem, but a step toward self-honesty. Guilt does not cover us in shame, but opens us to forgiveness. 
doesn't cover us in shame, but opens us to forgiveness. So there is a debt, if we want to use the language from the New Testament, a debt that is owed because of our sin. But that acknowledgement opens us up to an enormous predicament because we are completely and utterly incapable of making good on that debt. We can't even begin to start that repayment process. Like the servant in Jesus' parable from Matthew 18, we have no hope. But this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. The idea of justification that we we see Paul talking a lot about throughout his letters, especially in a place like Galatians chapter 2, it is not holiness or righteousness that remits payment for our sin. It isn't our ability to work some extra shifts and stash away some money so that we can figure out a plan to begin repaying on the enormous debt we owe. That is a fool's errand. It is not what we can do. It is only God's gift of forgiveness. In that parable, what do we see happen when the servant approaches the master? The debt is eliminated on the spot, wiped clean. Nothing else to be done by the servant. We simply respond and accept the gift of forgiveness, and we do so by entering the reality of our acceptance before God. We think of that image of the prodigal son returning home into the open arms of his father, having done nothing to deserve, having done nothing to amend what was broken. He simply accepts the new reality of the forgiveness of his father. This is the beautiful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul sort of weaves this thread throughout his uh, writing in Romans. We we find the progression of this idea in in chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The reality of sin. A few chapters later, the wages of sin is death. There is a penalty. There, There are consequences for sin. And there is no hope of us rectifying our situation. And yet we have hope, not because of what we can do, but because thanks be to God, like the song we sang this morning, we declared what love could remember, no wrongs we had done. Omniscient, all-knowing, knows everything that we have been involved in, and yet he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea, Without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. This is a beautiful image of the completeness of God's forgiveness. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. The only thing limiting the sea is the shore. We find a lot of wonderful imagery like this used throughout our scriptures to describe 
that unfathomable reality of God's forgiveness, the limitlessness, the, the completeness of God's forgiveness. Imagery like this, that God's forgiveness eliminates sin from his sight. No longer seen. There's a wonderful image in Isaiah chapter 38 when Isaiah is speaking the word of the Lord to Hezekiah. And a part of this thought in verse 17 is this. The prophet says, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. You've cast all of my sins behind your back. I love that image. Sins thrown to that place where God no longer sees them. Thrown behind his back. Or as the psalmist describes it in Psalm 103 verse 12. Well, back up to verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, how far is that? It's infinity. The, the points never touch. God never brings our sins against us again. He doesn't keep a, a log that sits on his shelf. And if we sin again, he's going to pull out that book and, and hold us responsible for all of the previous sins as well. We're back to square one. As the author of Hebrews says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The, the completeness of God's forgiveness is almost an absurdity. Because as humans, we, we don't function like that. I think of my, my own habits. It often takes years to forgive a very minor offense in a very incomplete way. But God's forgiveness is complete and perfect and never-ending. We are the imagery that is used, we are washed clean. In fact, in the Nicene Creed, which elaborates on this point of the forgiveness of sins, it does so by saying this, I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. The connection between this idea of being washed clean in the waters of baptism and the reality we find in our God. And how is any of this possible? And how is it even good? I mean, it's good when... I am the one being forgiven. I, I love that. But somebody else? I don't know. What, what about justice? What, what about accountability for the injury? How is forgiveness like that possible? And I think this is the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ. We are preparing in a moment to gather around the body of Christ broken for us the blood of Christ shed for us. How is mercy and justice reconciled? Well, at the cross 
of Jesus. God not only makes plain the seriousness of sin, but God also willingly steps in himself to bear that weight. We find this language over and over again throughout the New Testament that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our sins are removed. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, talking about the life we have in Christ. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Or 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, it is the blood of Jesus. In other words, the death of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. Forgiveness comes through the person of Jesus Christ. As Paul preaches in Antioch, Acts chapter 13, he says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Through this man, Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, forgiveness is possible. And what do we do? What part do we have to play in this free gift that we receive? Well, we just receive. We respond to Christ's invitation. It is a free gift, but is not forced on us. So today, we acknowledge our sin. And in faith, we trust that Christ is welcoming us home as a prodigal child. We turn from our sin and respond to God's invitation. And finally, we go out to do the same. As we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses, and it doesn't end there. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Or as Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As we come to the table this morning, we're going to begin preparing to do just that. I want to invite you, and and it's not me inviting you. I believe it is our Lord Jesus inviting us to the table. And as you respond to that invitation, you're invited to receive freely, to receive freely the life that Jesus offers you through his forgiveness. As we respond to the Spirit of Christ today around the table, like the forgiveness of God, there is no condition by which we earn participation in this meal. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves good enough to come to the table. The only prerequisite for this meal is to acknowledge our need for the forgiveness of Jesus and the life he offers, to respond to the invitation and to receive. Nothing less, nothing more. Would you stand this morning as we prepare to gather around the table of our Lord? I want to say a prayer for us by way of invitation. 
We'll, we'll invite you. You can make a line down one of these two center aisles. When you get to the front, the words will be spoken over you. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Thanks be to God. You can receive those elements on your own. Peel to the outside and make your way back to your seat. But let's pray as we prepare our hearts and our minds to receive what Christ has to offer us in this meal. Almighty God, you have not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Grant that we, who for our sin deserve death, by the might of your grace may mercifully be relieved through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table and receive the gift of life this morning?